Chapter Seven of the Romantic by May Sinclair. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine. Chapter Seven. Nothing, Charlotte said, is going to be worse than this. It seemed to her that they had waited hours in the huge grey hall of the hotel hospital, she and Sutton and Gwinnie, while John talked to the president of the Red Cross in his bureau everybody looked at them the doorkeeper the lift orderly the ward men and nurses hurrying past wide stares and sharp glances falling on her and gwinnie slanting downward to their breeches and puttees then darting upwards to their english faces sutton moved putting his broad body between them and the batteries of amused and interested eyes they stood close together at the foot of the staircase above them the gigantic flora leaned forward holding out her flowers to preoccupied people who wouldn't look at her. She smiled foolishly, too stupid to know that the Flandria was no longer an hotel, but a military hospital. John came out of the President's bureau. He looked disgusted and depressed. They can put us up, he said, but I've got to break it to you that we're not the only field ambulance in Ghent. Charlotte said, oh well, we'd no business to suppose we were. We've got to share our quarters with the other one. It calls itself the McLean Corps shall we have to sleep with it sutton said we shall have to have it in our mess-room i believe it's up there now well that won't hurt us what'll hurt us is this it'll be sent out before we are mclean was here hours ago he's been to headquarters sutton's gloom deepened how do you know president says so they went following the matron up the grey tessellated stairs at each landing the long grey corridors were tunnels for the passage of strange smells ether and iodine and carbolic and the faint odour of drains seeking their outlet at the well of the staircase on the third floor at the turn of the corridor a small vestibule between two glass doors led to a room flooded with a blonde light from the south beyond the glass doors their figures softened by the deep doubled shimmer of the panes they saw the little man in shabby tweeds the two women and the seven other men this madame explained was dr donald mclean's field ambulance corps you could see it had thought it was the only one as they entered they met the swoop of two beautiful indignant eyes a slow turning and abrupt stiffening of shoulders the movement of the group was palpable a tremor of hostility and resentment it lasted with no abatement while madame standing there in her gaunt flemish graciousness murmured names mrs rankin mrs rankin nodded insolently and turned away miss bartram miss bartram the rather charming one bowed drawing the shadow of grave eyebrows over sweet eyes dr donald mclean as he bowed the commandant's stare arched up at them then dropped suddenly innocent suddenly indifferent they looked around madame and her graciousness had gone nobody made a place for them at the two long tables set together in the middle of the room the mclean corps had spread itself over all the chairs and benches in obstinate possession they passed out through the open french windows on to the balcony it looked south over the railway towards the country where they thought the fighting must be they could see the lines where the troop trains ran going northwest and southeast and the railway station and post office all in one long red brick building that had a flat roof with a crenellated parapet grass grew on the roof and beyond the black railway lines miles upon miles of flat open country green fields 
rows of poplars standing up in them very straight little woods here and there a low rise bristling and dark with trees the fighting must be over there under the balcony the white street ran southeastward and scouting cars and ammunition wagons and long lines of troops were all going that way while they talked they remained aware of the others they could see mclean rubbing his hands they heard his brief laugh that had no amusement in it and his voice saying anyhow we've got in first when they came back into the room they found the tables drawn apart with a wide space between the belgian orderlies were removing plates and cups from one to the other establishing under the commandant's directions a separate mess by tea-time two chauffeurs had added themselves to the mclean corps twelve to four and they would have to live together nobody knew how long as long as the war lasted that evening in the bedroom that john shared with sutton they sat on the two beds discussing their prospects gwinnie was voluble they've driven us out of our mess-room with their beastliness we shall have to sit in our bedrooms all the time we'd better let the office know we're here said sutton in case we're sent for anyhow said charlotte i'm not going to bed john smiled a struggling dejected smile my dear child i've told you they're not going to send us out first i don't know said gwinnie i do know we shall be lucky if we get a look in when mclean's cars break down that's it have you seen their cars i overhauled them this morning in the yard they're nothing but old lorries converted and one of them's got solid tires well well you wait they waited even the mclean corps had to wait i don't care said charlotte how beastly they are to me provided they leave john alone what can they do he said they don't matter there's such a lot of them said gwinnie it's when they're all together they're so poisonous it's when they're separate charlotte said i think mrs rankin does things and there's mclean swearing he'll get us out of belgium but he won't she didn't care she had got used to it as she had got used to the mess-room and its furnishings the basket chairs and backless benches the two long tables covered with white marbled american leather the photographs of the king and queen of the belgians above the chimney-piece the atmosphere of hostility was thick and penetrating something that you breathed in with the smells of ether and iodine and disinfectant that hung about the grey leaking corridors and floated in the blond light of the room she could feel a secret threat in it as if at any minute it might work up to some pitch still more malignant some supreme disaster there were moments when she wondered whether mclean had prejudiced the authorities against them at first she had regarded the little man as negligible it was the women who had fascinated her as if they had or might come to have for her some profound importance and significance she didn't like mclean he straddled too much but you couldn't go on ignoring him his dreamy innocent full face with its arching eyes was a mask the mask of dangerous inimical intentions his profile was rough-cut brutal energetic you guessed the upper lip thin and hard under the hanging moustache the lower one stuck out like a sucker that was his real face it showed an adhesive exhausting will that squeezed and sucked till it had got what it wanted out of people he could work things so could mrs rankin she had dined with the colonel charlotte didn't care she liked that beastliness that hostility of theirs it was something you could put your back against 
It braced her to defiance. It brought her closer to John, to John and Gwinnie, and shut them in together more securely. Sutton she was not quite so sure about. Through all their depression, he seemed to stand apart somehow by himself in a profounder discontent. There are only four of us, he said. We can't call ourselves a core. You could see the way his mind was working. Then suddenly the atmosphere lifted at one point. Mrs. Rankin changed her attitude to John. You could see her beautiful hawk's eyes pursuing him about the room. When she found him in the corridors or on the stairs, she stopped him and chattered, under her breath because of the hushed words. He told Charlotte about it. That Mrs. Rankin seems inclined to be a bit too friendly. I haven't noticed it. Not with you. With Sutton and... and me. Well... Well, I can't answer for Sutton, but I don't like it. That isn't what we're out here for. They were going into the mess-room together towards dinner-time. Mrs. Rankin and Alice Bartram were there alone, seated at their tables, ready. Mrs. Rankin called out in her stressed, vibrating voice across the room, Mr. Conway, you people ought to come in with us. Why? Because there are only four of you and we're twelve. Sixteen's the proper number for a unit. Alice, didn't I say the minute I saw Mr. Conway with that car of his, didn't I say we ought to have him? You did. Thanks. I'd rather take my orders from the colonel. And I'd rather take mine from you than from McLean. Fancy coming out at the head of a field ambulance looking like that. Tell you what, Mr. Conway, if you'll join up with us, I'll get the colonel to make you our commandant. Alice Bartram opened her shadowed eyes. Trixie, you can't. Can't I? I can make the old boy do anything I like. John stiffened. You can't make me do anything you like, Mrs. Rankin. You'd much better stick to McLean. What do any of us know about McLean? What do you know about me? You could see how he hated her. I know you mean business. Doesn't he? Don't ask me what he means. She shrugged her shoulders violently. Come over here and sit by me. I want to talk to you seriously. She had shifted her seat and made a place for him beside her on the bench. Her flushed, handsome face covered him with its smile. You could see she was used to being obeyed when she smiled like that. When she sent that light out of her eyes, men did what she wanted. All her life, the men she knew had obeyed her, all except McLean. She didn't know John. He raised his head and looked at her with cool, concentrated dislike. I'd rather stay where I am, if you don't mind. I want to talk to Miss Redhead. Oh. Mrs. Rankin's flush went out like a blown flame. Her lips made one pale, tight thread above the set square of her chin. All her light was in her eyes. They stared before her at the glass door where McLean was entering. He came swaggering and slipped into his place between her and Alice Bartram, with his air of not seeing Mrs. Rankin, of not seeing Charlotte and John, of not seeing anything he didn't want to see. Presently he bobbed round in his seat so as to see Sutton, and began talking to him excitedly. At the end of it, Charlotte and Sutton found themselves alone, smiling into each other's faces. Do you like him, she said? I'm not sure. All the same, that isn't a bad idea of Mrs. Rankin's. It was Sutton who tried to work it the next morning, sounding McLean. Charlotte was in the space between the glass doors, arranging their stores in their own cupboard. McLean's stores had overflowed into it on the lower shelves. She could hear the two men talking in the room, Sutton's low, persuasive voice. She couldn't hear what he was saying. Suddenly McLean brought his fist down on the table. 
I'll take you, and I'll take your women, and I'll take your ambulances. I could do with two more ambulances, but I won't take Conway. You can't tell him that. Can't I? What can you say? I can say... She pushed open the glass door and went in. McLean was whispering furtively. She saw Sutton stop him with a look. They turned to her and Sutton spoke. Come in, Miss Redhead. This concerns you. Dr. McLean wants you and Miss Denning and me to join his corps. And how about Mr. Conway? Well, McLean was trying to look innocent. Mr. Conway's just the difficulty. There can't be two commandants in one corps, and he says he won't take orders from me. Mrs. Rankin must have talked about it then. Is that what you told Dr. Sutton? Yes. His cold, innocent blue eyes supported him. He was lying. She knew he was lying. That was not what he had said when he had whispered. You don't suppose, she said, I should leave Mr. Conway, and if I stick to him, Gwinnie'll stick. And Dr. Sutton? He can please himself. If Miss Redhead stays, I shall stay. John will let you off like a shot if you don't want to. She turned to go, and McLean called after her, My offer remains open to you three. Through the glass door she heard Sutton saying, If you're right, McLean, I can't very well leave her with him, can I? Sutton was stupid. He didn't understand. Lying on her bed that night, Charlotte made it out. Gwinnie, you know why McLean won't have John? I suppose because Mrs. Rankin's keen on him. McLean isn't keen on Mrs. Rankin. Can't you see he's trying to hoof John out of Belgium because he wants all the glory to himself? We wouldn't do that to one of them, even if we were mean enough not to want them in it. He wanted Sutton. Oh, Sutton. He wasn't afraid of him. When you think of the war and think of people being like that, jealous, hating each other. You mightn't like Mrs. Rankin, Mrs. Rankin and McLean, but you couldn't say they weren't splendid. Five days had passed. On the third day the McLean Corps had been sent out. Mrs. Rankin had not dined with the Colonel for nothing. It went again and again. By the fifth day they knew that it had distinguished itself at Alost and Termond and Catrecht. The names sounded in their brains like a song with an exciting, maddening refrain. October stretched before them, golden and blank, a volume of tense, vibrating time. Nothing for it but to wait and wait. The summons might come any minute. Charlotte and Gwinnie had begun by sitting on their driver's seats in the ambulances standing in the yard, ready to start the very instant it came. Their orders were to hold themselves in readiness. They held themselves in readiness and saw McLean's cars swing out from the rubbered sweep in front of the hospital three and four times a day. They stood on their balcony and watched them rush along the road that led to the battlefield southeast of the city. The sight of the flat Flemish land and the sadness of lovely days oppressed them. She felt that it must be partly that, the incredible loveliness of the days. They sat brooding over the map of Belgium, marking down the names of the places, Alos, Termont, and Catrach, that McLean had gone to, that he would talk about on his return when an awful interest would impel them to listen. He and Mrs. Rankin would come in about tea-time, swaggering and excited, telling everybody that they had been in the line of fire, and Alice Bartram would move about the room, quiet and sweet, cutting bread and butter and pretending to be unconcerned in the narration. And in the evening, after dinner, the discussion went on and on in John's bedroom. He raged against his infernal luck. If they thought he was going to take it lying down, 
McLean can keep me out of my mess room, but he can't keep me out of my job. There's room in the line of fire for both of us. How are you going to get into it? said Sutton. Same way as McLean. If he can go to headquarters, so can I. I wouldn't, Sutton said. It might give a bad impression. Our turn'll come before long. Gwinnie laughed. It won't, unless Charlotte dines with the Colonel. It certainly mayn't, said Charlotte. They may commandeer our cars and give them to McLean. They can't, said Gwinnie. We're volunteers. They can do anything they choose. Military necessity. Gwinnie was thoughtful. John, she said, can I have one of the cars tomorrow afternoon? What for? Never mind, can I? You can have both the damned things if you like. They're no good to me. The next afternoon they looked on, while Gwinnie, who wore a look of great wisdom and mystery, slipped her car out of the yard into a side street and headed for the town. She came back at tea-time, bright-eyed and faintly flushed. You'll find we shall be sent out tomorrow. Oh, shall we, John said. Yes, I've worked it for you. You? Me. They've seen my car. Who have? The whole lot of them. General staff. First of all, I paraded it all round the blessed town. Then I turned into the Place d'Armes. I kept it standing two solid hours outside the Hotel de la Poste, where the blooming brass hats all hang out. In five minutes it collected a small crowd. First it was only refugees and war correspondents. Then the colonel came out and stuck his head in at the back. He got quite excited when he saw we could take five stretcher cases. I showed him our tires and the electric light, and I ran the stretchers in and out for him. He'd never seen them with wheels before. He said it was magnifique. The old bird wanted to take me into the hotel and stand me tea. Didn't you let him? No. I said I had to stay with my car, and I took jolly good care to let him know it hadn't been out yet. Whatever made you think of it? I don't know. It just sort of came to me. Next afternoon, John had orders to go to Berlaire to fetch wounded. End of chapter 7 Recording by Expatriate in Bangor, Maine